0: That differentiation that that you remember and that was definitely present when I started in the astronaut office, was shuttle based, right? Because yes, the shuttle was was a glider, right, and needed those professional test pilots to to operate it from the front seat. Right. Um, but myself, as an engineer and as an oceanographer, I got to be the flight engineer, right, and be a part of that crew that was operating. And so for the for the new vehicle that I flew on the Crew Dragon, I was the pilot. And you know, I don't have a military test flying background. And so as the vehicle and the mission evolves, the roles evolve as well. And in particular for Space Station, we could not have done Space Station without everybody having to learn to do everything, right? Because when you have only you know, two US crew members on board and you need to do a US spacewalk, well, I don't care if you're a pilot or an engineer or a robotic arm operator, you have to be able to do that spacewalk.
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplorers.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. Were submarine races a thing in your youth? Where I grew up, that was a euphemism for going to the beach to make out. But it turns out there are also real sub races a biennial, every-other-year competition among human-powered mini-subs run by an outfit called the International Submarine Races. I first met my guest today at the 1993 sub Races in Florida. She was going to pilot the UCLA sub around the course, and we talked over hot dogs at the post-race barbecue one evening. It was an absolutely forgettable chat for me, just one of the countless student encounters in my life as an astronaut. But it was life-changing for Megan MacArthur, as I shared in my short solo, Momentary Mentoring. Seven years after that hot dog dinner, NASA selected Megan as an astronaut. She flew aboard the space shuttle on its final visit to the Hubble Space Telescope and also on SpaceX's Crew Dragon 2 mission. She's had a front row seat on the emergence of commercial space flights and also the development of NASA's Artemis program to return to the moon. And she'll share all of this and more in the conversation that follows. Enjoy. Hey, Megan, really great to see you again. It's been a very long time. It's wonderful to see you too, Kathy. Yeah, so where? Tell me where you're at. You have this funny green square behind you. Yes, yeah, so I'm
0: in. Um, I'm in the facility at Johnson Space Center in the astronaut office. We have this facility for doing virtual appearances, particularly with classrooms or other other setups, which was very handy, of course, during the pandemic when we weren't yeah. able to do in-person appearances. But it's a very it's a very high-tech room that I'm just borrowing for the nice, quiet space that it offers.
1: Very good. Now that you can do classroom visits virtually, I mean, it was always a big thing to find the day or day and a half to get somewhere. And how many do you end up doing? Does it Has it changed the frequency of doing them for astronauts today?
0: You certainly can do a lot more, you know, but we still, as you remember, your schedule is pretty crammed full of stuff. So even fitting yeah. in one a month can be a bit of a challenge, but it is nice that you can fit it into an otherwise full day. Just come down the hall, do it, visit with the, the school children, and then
1: go back to your business. Yeah. Yeah, the the only downside is if you're talking to really young grades, you don't get all the little kid hugs. I know that part is hard. Fortunately (laughs) for me,
0: I also spend time um, on a rotation right now over at Space Center Houston. And so I get to do a lot of in-person visit with with children as well. And there's lots of hugs. It's great.
1: And so that's kind of the hands-on, semi-interactive museum that's right on the flanks of the Space Center, right? Yeah, it's the official visitor center for
0: Johnson Space Center. It's right across the street, um, and they just do a tremendous amount of educational program, as well as having, of course, artifacts from spaceflight history, lots of spacesuits. Um, The Apollo 17 capsule is there, so it's it's a wonderful wonderful resource for the community, and, and people travel from all over the world to visit.
1: And it's got a space shuttle perched on a 747, if I remember. That's right. We
0: have the 747, and then the space shuttle mock-up on, on the roof of it.
1: Yeah. yeah, which anyone who sees that for the first time is just totally blown away by the scale of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, yep. yeah. So, Megan, I always start these um, interviews back at the beginning of the story with the question about who you were as a child and, you know, paint that picture for us of young Megan MacArthur and, you know, where she grew up and what family life was like and early memories that you still have of those early years. Sure. Well, my family is very important to me, probably
0: because we're a military family. So my whole life up until high school really was moving around the world with my family. I have um, two sisters. So for a long time, I was the youngest of, of three. And then I have a younger brother who was born 12 years later um, while we were living in England, actually. So my father was a career naval officer. He was a naval aviator. He flew an aircraft called the P-3 Orion. And in the course of his career, we, we moved every year or every two years. The longest time you know we stayed in one place was probably England, that was four years. And even then we moved house a couple of times. So um, it was a tremendous way to grow up. It was a tremendous way to see the world as a young person and realize that there's just a whole lot more out
1: there than, than what you can see from your own backyard. And what mixture of li- living on base and off did you experience through those years? In all of the times that
0: we lived overseas, we lived off base. So one of the times we lived in Japan, um, and this was would have been an unaccompanied tour for my father, but my parents decided that it would be an incredible experience for us girls to be able to, to live there as well. So we did go to school, um, the US school on the military base, but we lived off base in the in the local area. Um, same thing when we lived in Canada. My father did an exchange with the Canadian Air Force. So we lived what we call on the economy, right, in the local neighborhood. Also in England, we lived just in, you know, in the little local villages that were nearby the base where my dad worked.
1: If you're going to school in the American schools, which you know, makes sense so that you can line everything up with schools back home when you eventually come back to the States. But if you're doing that, were you ever able to build any friendships with local kids and get to know their sense of the world and some of their traditions and games?
0: Sure. Uh, Well, Canada was probably the easiest because we did go to the local schools speaking the the same language and the school system very similar. Plus, I was very young. It was preschool and kindergarten for me there. So one of my oldest friends, Dernie, I met in in preschool back then. Um, And so I have known her over the years. Japan was harder, of course, because of the language. So going to school on the base, but we we would at least be able to play outdoors. With the local kids, not really getting to have a lot of detailed conversations, but we could have snowball fights and um, we could use sign language <laughs> to communicate, you know, yeah. time out and it's time to go in for lunch and those kinds of things. So sa- same thing in England, of course, we, we speak the language, but the school system being so different, it was important for us to stay in the in the U.S. schools. Um, but we were able to, you know, meet the local kids. I babysat for the little boys next door who are now fully grown men and <laughs> I tease them about how hard on me they were when <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to get them to go to bed at night. But so we do have some wonderful, our family has some wonderful friendships that were made. And, you know, in these different places that people that we keep up with over the yeah. years.
1: Any other particularly vivid memories that as you're living your life now you find yourself drawing on or coming into play? Um, that's a great question. I, I think about my earliest
0: memories of going to air shows, which have become, you know, an important feature of my life are going to air shows in England with my father and how, you know, cold and rainy and wet it was. And we were out there to watch, you know, a lot of times these old warbirds, which my dad just loved and we'd be just freezing. And he would find a, <laughs> like a cart, a you know, baked potato cart. For some reason, those were always available. as <laughs> like street food at these air shows. So I remember shivering and watching air shows and um, enjoying a, a hot baked potato with my dad and, you know, air shows all over the place. So, those are good memories. Sort of early teenage years? Um, That was, we lived in England when I was from about 10 to about 14.
1: Okay. Yeah. And did that make an imprint on you? Did it plant any seeds about aviation being cool or interesting or... Absolutely.
0: Certainly, you know, when I was seven years old and they ask you in second grade, what are you going to be when you grow up? I would say I'm going to be a pilot like my dad. I changed my mind a lot. You know, sometimes I was going to be whatever my big sister was going to be, but but that interest in aviation was always there. And also that community of people, you know, when you travel all over the country and all over the world, the people who you are closest to are the people that are in that same aviation community, right? So the families whose parent is in the military and doing that same job. You know, my dad was, was overseas and actually flying a mission when I was born. And so it was the spouses from that community that were taking care of my mom and my, and my siblings at that time. So that sense of community and purpose has been, you know, kind of always important to me in
1: my life. Mm. And so when did space first enter the picture? Was that kind of a first field that really struck you as, I want my life to be like that? Or... Well, it was, it was associated with being part of a military family
0: because when I was a teenager, we lived on a military base in California called Moffett Field Naval Air Station. My father was stationed there. And that shares a space with the NASA Ames Research Center. And so as a teenager, I would see NASA astronauts come in their T-38 jets and, and park them on the ramp and they get out in their cool blue flight suit, right? And they would come, they were coming there to do training. So the airbase had a simulator called the Vertical Motion Simulator that was really a neat simulator. You could change the cabs and simulate different aircraft. But what was really neat about it was that it had this large physical throw where the cab would move I don't remember the exact dimensions, but I'm going to say like 40 feet laterally and maybe 65 feet vertically, and so you could really simulate these motions that would occur, for example, on landing if you um, failed a tire or failed some kind of flight control system, and so that's why astronauts were coming there because they could simulate space shuttle landings there, and so that for me was the first time that I saw astronauts as real people with a real job, and I thought it looked like a pretty cool job, and so that was sort of the first impression for me about space. Um, This was, again, when I was a young teenager. And shortly after that, when I was a sophomore in high school, is when the Challenger accident happened. And for me, that sort of solidified this impression of of the importance of space exploration, of the importance of human spaceflight, because I I understood it as this is something that people are willing to give their lives for, that this mission of exploration is so important to us as, as humans. And so that's kind of those impressions that I had as a young person. And it's also kind of around the time when people start asking you, you know, what are you going to do with your life? And so for me, I identified that as something important, something meaningful, something sort of larger than the individual that I wanted to be a part of.
1: So before Challenger, there'd been a couple of really remarkably dramatic, you know, television dramatic shuttle missions like you know Bruce McCandless donning a little jet backpack and flying and 100 yards away from the shuttle and then Pinky Nelson and Ox Van Hoften flying off in the backpack and you know, grabbing a satellite and bringing it back to the cargo bay and repairing it and letting it go again. Did you remember watching any of those missions? Did that make any kind of impression?
0: You know, I'll be honest with you, Kathy, I don't have memory. I've seen them since then yeah. and, and realized how remarkable they are. But for me, it was it was the sort of in-person impression that I had by seeing seeing these people come kind of to my home, really. Right. Um, and then, you know, shortly followed by by the Challenger accident was the combination of those two things that really made it a reality for me.
1: Interesting. So what did you do with that new reality?
0: Well, it was at the time when I was starting to explore what am I gonna do next, right? Going off to college, what, I'm going to, what am I gonna study in college? And having already had the interest in aviation and now this new interest in space, I started looking for universities that had an aerospace engineering program. Understanding that it would be a real long shot to ever get to be an actual astronaut, But believing that I wanted to be a part of such a mission, right, a a part of a group of people that were that were pursuing these kinds of goals. And so I was, you know, I wanted to work for for NASA. And, you know, with my understanding at that point, that meant, you know, aerospace engineering. That's that was my understanding at that time.
1: Was that your dad's academic background? No,
0: actually, it's not at all. So when I came to my parents, my mother's a history major, my father's a political science major. So when I came to them and said, I'm going to be an engineer, they said, that's great. And um, we will call our friends who are engineers to help you with your calculus <laughs> homework because we cannot do we that. Have no <laughs> we have no idea. We have no idea. Yeah. Yes. So so actually, that that was what at the time we were still living you know, on the military base and my dad's boss happened to be, you know, have an engineering degree background. And so when I needed help with my calculus homework, they would call them up and say, I'm sending Megan over. And and so down the street, I would go. So, you know, again, that that community support was really important for me throughout my, you know, throughout my career, even as a teenager. So where'd you end up at college? So I went to UCLA in Los Angeles. So University of California, Los Angeles in the aerospace engineering department, which at the time was a mechanical aerospace nuclear engineering it was a bit of a shock at first, you know, you come out of high school as someone who's, yeah, I'm pretty good at math. I'm not top of the, I'm not top of the world. I think about it now. And I think, man, I would never even get into that school nowadays, (laughs) but um, you know, my grades were good enough and I was able to get into the program and it was a real shock. The difference between sort of high school mathematics and mathematics at the university level. And I still remember that very first quarter of calculus And, you know, I had tested into not the very first level, but you you skipped a bit, um, which was a mistake. I should have started right at the beginning, but um, you're very proud of your test scores when you get there. Right. And you want to, you want to take advantage of what you've gained. And I think my first midterm, I got a D, which I'd never had a D in my life, Kathy. I was just shocked. And then the next midterm I got a C and I thought, okay, I got to take action here. But I had this, I remember the professor in, in my mind, as a young woman, this professor being this sort of older gentleman, you know, with the white hair that stands out in every direction, always with his back to the class and just scribbling (laughs) on the chalkboard. And, you know, this is my memory. And I thought, this man is terrifying. I don't want to go to his office hours, you know, but, but I had to, like, I didn't have a choice. I was going to fail this class. And so I I started going to his office hours and he was the kindest person He was so welcoming. I think he was maybe happy that someone had come to office hours. I don't know, but he went through all of my test scores with me and we talked about, you know, where I seemed, he said, okay, I can see you, you know, you know what you're doing. You have the basics. He said, I think you're just getting nervous and maybe you're running out of time. And he said, here's what I want you to do. You keep doing your homework because you're doing fine on all your homework. But the next time we have a test, don't stay up all night cramming and studying, just have a nice dinner." go to bed early, you know, be well rested. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's genius advice. Um, <laughs> but I did it and it really started to turn the grade around. And I think probably not just that advice, but knowing that he believed that I could do it, yeah. it helped me start to believe that I could do it, if that makes sense. And so in this completely unexpected place, I had found an ally and a, and a mentor basically that was, you know, here's an adult that's not related to me that believes in me. Right. Which was unexpected and, and fantastic. So um, I ended up, you know, with an A minus in the class, thank goodness. Because was, or maybe I got an A on the final and a B in the class or, you know, who knows, but I passed. And so that was, I, I, I turned it around. But, you know, that entry into college can be a real shock. Yeah. You know, when you, when you just come from high school, kind of coasting and now you have to really work for it. But I learned that lesson up front, which was an important lesson.
1: Do you ever think about what would happen if he, you know, I mean, some people's attitude or some would approach a situation like that. Challenging you further, you know, the mindset of sort of let me doubt her and make her mad, and her anger will rile up, and and that'll spur her to achieve. That, that's you know one push button. People a lot right. of people like to push as a primary leadership mechanism. He he pushed the other button. He he pushed the I can see you can handle this. Let's find a way that yeah. that comes through. You know, I have not thought about that
0: before, but that's a really interesting question. I have had other periods in my life. Um, which we'll probably get to where people said, you know, you really need to rethink this. I'm not sure you can do this. And my reaction absolutely was to, you know, to sit up straight and say, I absolutely can do this. Don't you dare tell me I can't. But I think at that time, at that age, and that level of vulnerability I had in that transition, I probably would not have persisted on my own um, because, you know, you're, you're sort of filled with doubt. I was and thinking I should change my major. I'm going to be an English major, I'm going to do something completely different that's not this hard. Not that English major would not have been hard. It it certainly would have, but it would have been very different. And that was the encouragement I think that I needed at that time.
1: Yeah, because I had a very similar experience freshman year when I was making a big course change from a language major mm. into a science major. And, you know, I know for a fact, if the professor I had approached for some, I mean, very vague guidance, something is really interesting me in here, and I'm not sure what it is, and I'm not sure what to do about it. <laughs> and, and if he basically said, well, you're a stupid 17-year-old French major, no wonder go back to the French department, I would have gone. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But he responded more like that, Prof. He said, he, he heard what was underneath. Yep. And fed it to help it come out instead of squashing on it. That's fantastic. And I, I wouldn't be here either if I'd picked the wrong guy. Right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. My guy, my professor, looked like a very approachable, kindly surfer dude and lived up to that. Your guy from the back, kind of looked like an ogre that was terrifying. So,
0: <laughs> Well, you were in Santa Cruz, so maybe that, that helps with the surfer dude approach. Probably helped
1: a lot with the surfer dude approach. Right.
0: I, I was very lucky and very grateful. You know, the older I get, the more I realize how important that moment was for me.
1: Yeah. So you pass calculus and you carry on with your major, but you also made a pretty significant course change in college. Tell Curious how that first started to occur to you and what you remember of how it felt to be navigating that. Sure. So one of my friends in aerospace
0: engineering, a fellow named Derek Leak, he was in Navy ROTC and he was, after graduation, was going to go be a nuclear power submarine officer for the United States Navy. And so he at some point read about a competition in a magazine, I don't know if it was Popular Mechanics or one of those magazines, about these um, human powered submarine races and this is one of these engineering competitions that college students and graduate students compete in, like the cement boat that civil engineers build, or the human powered vehicle that mechanical engineers build. And he decided that we, this, his group of friends, were going to build a, a submarine. And all of us were aerospace engineers, maybe one mechanical engineer. So um, this was an interest and a passion of his. And, you know, I wanted the experience of building something, right? Because in the education that I was getting was a lot more theoretical back then that people realize, you know, the importance of project work nowadays, where you actually, you know, design and build something and go through all of those pieces of the process. So that's what we did. And we had to do the fundraising and we had to do the design and then we got to do the building and we got, you know, different people to help us with different parts of that. But we were doing a lot of the hands-on, we were really doing all of the hands-on work yeah. ourselves.
1: So how, how big a submarine are we talking about here? So it's
0: a good question. It, w- well, the, the submarines are two person okay. and we designed ours. Uh, one of our teammates was actually on the UCLA cycling team. So it was kind of this big powerhouse of a guy. He was it's going to be our powerhouse engine and we designed, you know, the cross section to kind of fit around him. And then the <laughs> space that was left over for the pilot was actually very, very small. So Derek, who was our team captain, looked around and I was the only woman on the team. And he said, you're it, Megan, you're the you're pilot. It. <laughs> and I was like, uh, OK, OK. Um, and the, the submarines are flooded. So for, you know, just the the added complexity of building a pressure vessel, right, is is another level of complexity and and safety. So you
1: don't have to hold air inside. So you don't have to hold
0: air inside. So the whole thing is flooded. And so both people are on scuba. Okay. And so- I had to get scuba certified and, you know, I could swim, but I was not a strong swimmer. I was not definitely not a strong ocean swimmer. And so learning to get scuba certified was the whole thing for me. Um, it was definitely a challenge. And this was one of those conversations that I ended up having with someone at the university um, where they had a university dive team or dive program yeah. that you had to get through. And, you know, there were times when I struggled. And, and so the, the guy sat me down, the, the safety lead, and he said, hey, I, you know, we just need to have this conversation because I can see that you're struggling you know, in some of these swim conditions and you really, you know, this could potentially be a safety issue for you. And I was, you know, I was a couple of years older, right? So I was so offended that he thought I couldn't do it, that I, I knew I had to double down on how hard I was working. <laughs> you know, I was doubling on those swim workouts and, and really working on my confidence and capability underwater, um, which was great. It's, it's absolutely what I needed. And then so at that point, that challenge was, was the right level of challenge for me. So um, all that is to say, in the process of meeting that challenge and becoming SCUBA certified, I fell in love with the ocean. You know, it was a whole new world that had gotten unlocked for me being underwater and sort of conquering this fear of not knowing what was underwater and seeing that it was this magical place. I was hooked and I thought, well, now how can I, I'm an aerospace engineer, I'm a year away from graduating. And at the time it was a pretty tough job market for aerospace engineers. And so I thought I have this engineering skill. Is there a way that I can transition from an engineering background into Oceanography, something. I don't know what that is, but something that's not biology, right? And so it just so happened that at the human powered submarine races. Well, um, well,
1: wait a second. Was that you're on aerospace track thinking you want to be with NASA and maybe an astronaut? Right. And so as the ocean hooks you, are you wrestling with this means letting that go? Absolutely. So I have this question mark
0: now in my head about I, I do still want to pursue this path toward NASA. But I don't know, I don't know what to do with this sort of newfound interest, right? And Am and I closing do I, the
1: door if I go exactly. in the ocean Is, direction is this
0: going to be, I have to shut off this interest forever? Or it's my
1: hobby, exactly. but I stay in aerospace or... Yeah. So, you
0: know, as a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, you don't really know what that next step can look like. And so for me, I went to the, the submarine races. And so this was sort of my last summer before I had like one more quarter of, to finish university. And we went to the races. This was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay. And the, the dive safety officer emeritus from UCLA is this man named Glenn Eggstrom. And he had a friend named Jim Corey, who was going to be running the safety program at the submarine races in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So he called up his friend and he said, hey, I want you to look out for these young people, in particular, this, this young woman, she's going to be one of the only young, pe- young women there. And so, you know, keep an eye out for these kids. And so we had our submarine in the water on that very first day. We were struggling to get everything ready. So we'd missed some of the early testing and we had our submarine out there for the first time trials and all kinds of things were going wrong. I think one of the things was we had it right as we were finally getting ready to go like an O-ring blew in one of the tanks. And so our submarine just started filling up with air, just foaming, foaming, (laughs) foaming. And so we had to release and come to the surface and, you know, pop the lid and try to figure this out. And this man swims over to us and he starts yelling at me. He says, are you the pilot of this vessel? And I was like, oh, sir, yes, sir. You know, he, says, he goes, well, uh, hello, I'm Jim Corey. Glenn Eggstrom told me to keep an eye out for you. How can I help you guys today? So, <laughs> so he kind of took us under his wing. And, you know, in the course of just talking, he took us all out to dinner one night. And in the course of talking to him, I told him about this dream of mine to become an astronaut. And he said, well, I have somebody that you need to meet. And I said, oh, OK. And so he said, that, you know, the keynote speaker for the big event this week is is Kathy Sullivan, who was the first American woman to do a spacewalk and NASA astronaut. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. You know, <laughs> I really get to meet her. And so he introduced me to you uh, at the barbecue that night and said, hey, you know, this young woman wants to be an astronaut. And I remember, um, you know, I thought we did our shake hands and then away and you did your thing. And I thought, well, that was amazing. That was so cool. I can't believe I got to meet her. And then you got your dinner and you came over and you sat down with me and you said, okay, tell me all about your plan to become an astronaut. And I remember saying to you, well, I, I don't know how to, how did, how did you do it? Maybe you could tell me how to do it kind of thing. <laughs> and that was kind of how we started that conversation. And I remember talking to you about, you know, this dilemma that I had, that I was this aerospace engineer, and yet I had fallen in love with the idea of ocean exploration. And how do I, how, where do I go from here? You know, do I take this left turn? Do I keep going in the direction I'm going? And I, don't, I can pause here and, and, and see if you—you rem- you probably don't remember this conversation because you probably had a similar conversation with hundreds of young women throughout <laughs> your career.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. I what I remember about that day is I went down to the beach in you know street clothes, shorts, and, and a blouse to just watch what was going on. And some some submarine, not yours, was foundering. Maybe it was Jim. I looked around. And said, can you drive a jet ski? And I said, yeah. I said, go help that. So I I waded into the water fully clothed <laughs> and drove a jet ski, towing boats around all day long. So I was actually soaked oh my when goodness. I came into that dinner. Still not quite dripping wet a little bit <laughs> But I did not remember that dinner until many years later. This will fill the gap in here in a moment. Many years later, you're about to go on your first shuttle flight, and I get a Christmas card from Jim Corey because we've remained good friends. No, before that, I got an email from you, from this astronaut named Megan, who I actually didn't remember, (laughs) uh, offering to fly a memento for me on your flight. And for those who don't know, in the shuttle program, you didn't get to take a lot of personal stuff with you. Uh, And it was like by number, by name, maybe 10 Right. Very small items. So this woman's going on her very first space flight and she's offering me, a stranger, one of her 10 slots. That's weird. But yeah, I have this thing. I'd love to have fly in space. So thank you very much. Christmas card comes a couple months later and Jim says, isn't it so exciting? Our Megan is going to go fly in space. And I think I called her up and said, who? (laughs) "Uh, What do you mean our Megan? (laughs) And he told me the whole story. And I think I then wrote you an email saying, oh, well, guess what I just remembered? <laughs> because you're yes. right. As an astronaut, you have, you have hundreds of those moments, some a little more structured and planned than others. And right. like everyone, you're inadvertently mentoring people or showing them an example when you don't even know it. Right. And the more visible you are in a coveted, high cachet job, the more that's happening without you even being aware of it. Absolutely. And I still, I hope someday that some
0: young person that I have talked to will come to me and say, Hey, I'm about to, I'm going to Mars. And is there any small thing (laughs) I can take for you to Mars? Because thank you so much for talking to me when I was trying to figure out my life. But what I remember and the advice, the thing that I say to people every time I'm asked for advice about how to become an astronaut, I say, well, I had the opportunity to meet Kathy Sullivan when I was a (laughs) young woman. And what she told me is what I'm going to tell you, which is that you have to choose that thing that you love to do no matter what, and then do that thing as well as you can do it. Because if you choose something you don't love, you're never going to excel at it. And NASA is not going to choose you if you're not excelling at whatever it is that you do. And if you choose something that you love and you excel at it, even if you never get chosen by NASA to become an astronaut, you're going to wake up and do something that you love every day. And, you know, that probably seems like really obvious advice to an adult or to someone, you know, at the point that we're at in our lives now but at the time it was it was so powerful it was like permission to do what uh what made sense to me what i what i knew in my heart i wanted to do and it was this notion that you're not closing a door there's not a pipeline right there's not one way to get from here to there that's right there's not it's one pathway. magic pathway right. right right you can step off you can step back on you're going to wind all over the place yeah but you know keep those goals in mind keep keep moving forward and you know you just don't know where you're going to end up
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, if you're aiming at a particular job with a particular company or agency, you also don't know and they don't know what the future holds from them. A program could close down. Something else could end it. And you've you've taken a path you don't like that you're not going to fully excel at, hoping that doors their door stays open and then it closes. It can happen. Right. And the thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that,
0: you know, I'm not at NASA to do aerospace engineering. I'm not at NASA to do oceanography, right? I'm at NASA to be part of a team that's executing a mission together. And it's that combination of skills, which engineering contributes to, right? Which my you know, at sea experience contributes to that helps us complete those missions successfully. So it's, that, it's just a combination of skills. It's not one specific task that you're gonna be expected to do. And that's what's so great about the job, right? Is that you're, you're getting to always learn new stuff and always do different things.
1: So that's a great segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you, which is paint a verbal picture for my listeners about what life is like for an astronaut. You've, you've been at NASA for how many years? I've been at NASA for 22 years. And you've flown in space how many times? I've flown in space twice. Okay. So there's a lot of time in between <laughs> and around those two space flights. And I've said many times to people, no one stays 22 years. The reward, if the satisfaction is just two events. So there's gotta be something in all those other days and times. Absolutely. That's compelling, gratifying, satisfying. So but tell me more at the texture level, what's what's a day like? What's a week like for an astronaut? Sure. The
0: best thing about it, Kathy, is that every day and every week is different, right? And and that's really one of the things I realized that I love about it. And again, coming in, I didn't know to expect that, but but being here and, and experiencing that, it is it is part of the reason why you stay, right? The other big reason kind of goes back to what I talked about earlier, which is being part of a team that cares passionately about something that's difficult, right? This is not easy things to do. Being part of a high-performing team and meeting those challenges together, it doesn't necessarily matter if you're the team member that's in space, you're a team member on the ground, you're still making it happen. And you experience that in very real ways every day. So the typical day when you start, obviously, as an astronaut, you're doing a lot of training, right? So it's a, it can be classroom sessions. It starts off typically as classroom sessions in a group that you were selected with. My group was 17 astronauts from all different backgrounds, right? So a lot of military, some civilian scientists and engineers, medical doctors, those kinds of things. Kind of like graduate school for astronauts, right? That's exactly right. Yes. And so everybody's coming from these different backgrounds. You have test pilots. We had a guy that was a submarine officer, Air Force uh, flight test engineers. And so you get this, you know, not incredibly diverse because obviously we're hiring people with technical and engineering and science backgrounds. Right. um, Because we're hiring them to do technical and engineering types of things, right? So we're doing classroom lessons on how the spacecraft operates, how we operate the spacecraft. So then you do simulations where you're in a situation that resembles the the spacecraft and you're learning how to operate it when everything's going well and then they start breaking everything and you learn how to (laughs) operate it when things are not going so well and you do this sort of I remember when I first walked into one of the simulators and I thought Look at all these switches. I am
1: <laughs> never going to learn what all exactly. these switches do. It's like sixteen hundred <laughs> switches
0: in a space shuttle cockpit.
1: Yeah,
0: it's so many. Um, but sure enough, we, I mean, we have the best instructors in the world, right? These people are so good at what they do, and they break it down system by system. They teach you how the individual system operates and how it malfunctions, and then they teach you how the systems operate together and how they malfunction together, and how you can, you know, fix one thing, you know, to to sort of limp along in another area. So, um, well, and how to
1: figure out. Which one has yeah. failed and How what the interactions out, right? are?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, what's the symptomology? Have, right. We have we have technology now where the computer can tell you this is what's wrong. But but back in the day for the the space shuttle technology, it was you had to very much put together. Well, this sign and this sign and this notification means that this is my failure, and so these are the steps I need to take. So it definitely was a little bit more like solving a mystery um, than, than it can be now. So um, that was the beginning. You also then learn to do sort of the, the advanced level work, right? The robotics, the spacewalking, potentially the science that you're going to do on a given mission, the rendezvous task. So two spacecraft meeting together in space, you do the sort of advanced level training. Um, but after your initial training is over, which tends to be about two years, then you're released, you know, into, into the wild, right? Into the astronaut <laughs> office to support. The mission in whatever way somebody needs support so that often involves going to meetings right and representing yeah. the astronaut office when decisions are being made about you know how something is going to work about tasks that are going to be done and so you you're the voice for the astronaut office in a, in a lot of these different forums and so you're interacting with engineers and other people that have been doing this for years but it's your job to represent the crew in all of those situations
1: and so what's the culture like? I mean, we were just talking about professors who are either elbowing you and challenging you or supporting you. What's the culture within the astronaut office like these days? Um, well, the, the culture, I would say, has it has changed largely because the size of the astronaut
0: office has changed and the mission has changed. And so when I first arrived, there was something like 120 astronauts. And we launched eight space shuttles in the first 12 months that I was here because we were right in the heart of, right at the beginning of the space station construction. And so there was just a tremendous energy. You know, we were doing simulations all the time. We spent, as the newer core, as the inexperienced core, we actually spent a lot of time together um, doing simulations to support the missions that were going on. So you're testing out the software that's going to be used, you know, on a given mission. And you're also keeping up your own skills. Um, And you did have maybe more rare opportunities to interact with a senior, more experienced person. And then your real opportunity to do that was, of course, once you're assigned to a mission and, and part of a crew. Now the astronaut office is a lot smaller. Our mission is different. The space station is complete in terms of a construction phase. And so the mission now is the ongoing science. And discovery that's happening on the space station, and so we have a smaller core. We're putting fewer people in space in any given year. Um, we're staying for longer duration, and so the difficult part of that is that we actually, as as astronauts, don't get to spend as much time together in a mission support capacity. We are often doing a little bit more solo work, or you know, in small teams of people who are not astronauts, which is also fantastic. But we don't spend as much time together as astronauts until you're assigned to a mission. So we have talked about, we need to be very intentional about creating those opportunities and about creating culture within the astronaut office, you know, especially for the, for the folks that are coming in more recently, right. Um, And trying to understand what is this thing that's astronaut culture and how do I fit into it? So it's,
1: it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing challenge. What, what would you say the balance or blend is of collaborative and competitive? I mean, there are Not that many seats, not that many flights. Some people might react with, well, I want to get some dirt on Megan and make sure higher ups know it because that'll put me one up on Megan and I'll I'll be more likely to get that seat. Yeah, there is no dirt on Megan, Kathy. No. um... Well, of course not.
0: (laughs) I would say, so my experience of it throughout the time that I've been here has been one of collaboration rather than competition. Um, and that may sound naive and other people may have experienced it differently. But for me, I always felt like if there was something I didn't understand or something I wasn't good at, I could always go to somebody and say, here's the thing, I need your help and 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 expect to get that help. I would say that we now select for that, right? So I've been I've had the privilege of being on the selection board a couple of times and it is all about teamwork and collaboration when we're hiring people because you cannot you cannot hire the lone wolf, right? Who's going to be right. out in front or shining by themselves to do a space station mission. You just can't. You're going to be in space. I was in space for 200 days with my crew and people ask me, well, how do you handle conflict? And I, you know, I said, we didn't, we just really didn't have any, you know, like we were all there with a shared purpose. We were all there to support one another. If somebody was having a bad day, somebody else was there to support them and, and you know, encourage them and cheer them up. So you're really, you know, that you're in it together, right? You succeed together. It's not a, it's not a solo sport.
1: You flew once on a space shuttle on a mission to, the final mission to repair the Hubble Space Telescope, in fact. And you've had a SpaceX flight. Yes. Compare and
0: contrast. Sure. Very, very different, as I'm sure you are aware. But similar in the sense that, you know, we're accessing low Earth orbit. Um, The space shuttle is a much larger vehicle right a lot more power and energy required to get you off the surface of the planet and it has the whole payload bay right it can take up the hubble space telescope for example or large pieces of hardware so tremendous amount of energy so you're sitting on the launch pad and you know when when you go you have that sort of violent shaking, right? You're being, you're being shaken around like a ragdoll while the solid rocket boosters are going and you're just going faster than fast and getting faster all the time, which is remarkable. It's, it's physically overwhelming, right? That, that sensation of, of speed and power. So the Crew Dragon vehicle because it's a capsule vehicle and it is, it is that for a very important reason, but it's a capsule vehicle. It's a much, much smaller rocket, right? A lot less energy drop shape basically. Uh, Yes, exactly. So a lot less energy is required to get you off the launch pad and, and into space. And so while you are still going fast, 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 it's much smoother. And you, you kind of It's almost like you have enough extra bandwidth to just enjoy the ride, if that makes sense. Yeah, It's so it it is a very different sensation. It's very smooth acceleration. Um, Second stage was actually a little bumpier than first stage, which is kind of the reverse for shuttle, Mm -hmm. if you remember. Mm -hmm. You know, so the two vehicles getting off the launch pad very different. The space shuttle again, we kind of talked about. You know, built in the in the '70s and you know operated throughout a couple of decades with lots of switches. You know, we did have the glass cockpit upgrade, but a lot of crew interaction required to do both nominal operations and, you know, off-nominal operations, limited capability for the thing to self-diagnose, right? Right. So the, the SpaceX Crew Dragon has a lot more autonomy and ground control. So there's limited capability for the crew on board to interact with the systems or even to get data about the systems because of that level of autonomy that's sort of designed in to the, to the vehicle.
1: Did you did you like that? I mean, you were a flight engineer type on a shuttle. Was that disconcerting to sort of, there, there's no switches, there's no data, there's no... Are you sure you did this right? It was, it just was disconcerting,
0: yeah. <laughs> yes, I need the data. Definitely a switch. Not not trying to make a pun. It's you have to switch (laughs) your mindset very much into this vehicle does a lot for itself of what in terms of monitoring of what I used to have to do. You always in both cases, you're really trusting in your ground control team, right? And you have as a crew member on board, you have some ability to affect change in both cases. But it's not complete, right? It's not 100%. Right, right. And so you are buying into that. You are buying into the fact that the team on the ground and the team that put these vehicles together are are what's going to keep you safe throughout
1: this journey. I'm curious about the launch suits, the spiffy white launch suits, compared to the bulky orange pumpkin suits. Yes. Well, the good thing about bulky
0: orange is there's a little bit of room. To move right inside of that suit, <laughs> the white suits are very, very tailored, so they're custom made to your to your body, so very tight fitting. You do have to be able to demonstrate that you can get into that suit within 15 minutes to respond to an emergency. Um, all four people in the suit, and you have to be able to don your suit yourself, okay, um, without assistance. So even though it it fits like a glove, you know, we make sure that we learn all the tips and tricks for getting into that suit quickly. It definitely helps to have people help you, but you can do it. Yeah. It, there's differences in the way the challenge is met, right? So the, the suits in both cases are what's going to keep you alive if you have a depressurization, toxic atmosphere, you know, right. like with fire, that kind of thing. So both suits do the job, that job really, really well. They choose a little bit different look, I guess, to do that. Yeah. And so then it can be limiting, both suits can be limiting your reach and access and visibility to doing the job that you need to do. So you're kind of trying to split the difference between, you know, staying safe and, and still being able to react, yeah. you know, to a nominal and off nominal situation. And then kind of the way the suit looks. Yeah. I liked the additional mobility that the pumpkin suit, as we like to call it, <laughs> the orange suit, gives. It's just a little bit more comfortable for the long term.
1: Yeah. I'm curious to ask you some questions about, because you're still sort of in a catbird seat at NASA. You've been part of the Dragon Flights. And I'm curious to ask you about two things. One is Jared Isaacman, successful entrepreneur who's already flown twice in space. He's basically chartered missions from SpaceX. So he's basically bought all four seats in in several Dragon capsules. Uh, And he's got several more missions planned under a heading of Polaris, which will include the first time a human being does a spacewalk from a purely commercial, a, a relatively untrained civilian compared to the training a NASA spacewalker goes through. What do you make of the Isaacman approach to his stated intent is to accelerate the progress of technology and people in space while at the same time raising some money to do good for a cause on earth what are your thoughts sure you know that is something i i have thought a lot about
0: and i think my ideas have certainly evolved over time which of course that's what you want right you want to you want to be open to new ideas and new thoughts you know, when I think back to, you know, the early days of aviation or even, you know, train travel, it is oftentimes those high net worth individuals, right. That are leading that are at the leading edge for everybody else. And so when I think about what is the future, what, what do I want the future to look like? Right. Like Mm. I read science fiction, I go to go to those movies and I believe in a future where people have access to space. And so if you want that future at some point, the now has to be complicated, right? And difficult. Right. And I think we're in that now right now. Change, hmm. change can be really hard. It can be scary. And so when you see people doing things in a way that's different than the way we're used to doing them, that gives us pause, right? And and I know from having done the training, and you know from having done it in space, spacewalks are difficult and dangerous. And the hardware required to keep you safe in that environment is complicated. And we are seeing that now with our with our fleet of suits that we're still using, you know, maintaining those suits and making sure that they can continue to do that really important job. It's a challenging thing. And so I know I would say next to nothing about what they're planning as far as a spacesuit to do a spacewalk. Um, But I do know how difficult it is. And so I think it's important for everybody to remember that it's not easy, right? They are going to face some challenges. And I'm sure they are seeing that along the way as they prepare for this mission. But I also think it's, it is in some ways a necessary step for somebody to say, we need to start doing this differently. We need to think about this differently. Mm -hmm. And so while I have kind of a lot of trepidation (laughs) about it, I'm also very interested to see how it plays out.
1: So how far into the future do you think it will be when an average person going to space will be about as complicated as the pre-takeoff briefing in an airliner? Seatbelt, seat back, tray table. Thank you very much. Enjoy the flight. Oh, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not very good with the crystal ball. Decades?
0: I think it's decades. I mean, and it depends on what kind of experience you're talking about. If you're talking about having the suborbital flight that maybe gets you from one continent to another, you know, that is probably sooner. I don't know economically if the cost would come down enough in the next mm-hmm. decade for your average person like myself to do the the longer duration missions and the longer distance missions. Those are not going to get less complicated um, yeah. anytime soon. And so I think, you know, I don't know that it will ever be as easy as what we see in the you know in the science fiction movies, right? <laughs> but I I'm hopeful that the access gets to be greater than
1: it is now. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you? You're, you talked about having this dual job at sort of the museum side, the visitor center side, and still on the NASA payroll. What's the future hold for Megan MacArthur? Well, you know, when I was in space
0: last year, I started to think about that, partly because people start to ask you, you know, even though you probably remember this, like you got, got back from your mission and people would be like, what's next for you? When's your next mission? Yeah, right. right. <laughs>
1: like, can I just enjoy being as, back? As if I know, yeah. Can I have 30 seconds to... <laughs> yeah. So when you're on
0: a long duration mission, people do, well, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, man, I'm only halfway through this, but okay, I'll start, you know, I'll start thinking about it. What do I want to do next? And part of this job that I love is sharing it with people, right? Understanding that I didn't get here by myself. Um, you know, the American people put me here and I feel like an obligation to share, you know, the, the wonders of the experience that I got to have. And I enjoy it, right? I enjoy seeing somebody spark to a new idea or start to think about something in a different way. I really enjoy that aspect of it. And so I wondered how could I, you know, with my background and experiences, how can I contribute in a meaningful way to sharing this experience? You know, we talk a lot about STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. I'm not a professional educator, although I have a lot of experience with informal education. And I think about, you know, we, I think we do, we have a lot of programs for young people to encourage STEM. And that's so important, I think, for our country right now. But I also think it's important for every citizen, right? Every person walking down the street to have some capacity for science literacy. And yet you meet so many people, so many adults that say, oh, no, I'm not a science person or "Oh, I was terrible at math. But that interest is there. And, and you see that interest when you have a conversation with people about space. And so I think of space kind of as a, as a gateway science, right? Because almost everybody is interested. They find it fascinating. Yeah. Even if it's that they're just connecting with you as having lived in this unusual environment, they want to know more about it. And so you're able to teach people stuff that is, you know, science yeah. <laughs> without them maybe Sneak in there. It, right? <laughs> right? And so for me, like I love museums. I've always loved museums, um, science museums, right? Aviation museums. I love it. And I love going there. You see people with their families are having a good time, but they're also learning and they're probably, they're thinking, Oh, I want my child, you know, to have this exposure to STEM. But I, I, me, Megan, I want the parents and everybody else to have that exposure. Right. And to understand that this is something that they can grasp, not only something that they can grasp, but, but they have to grasp, right. To be a functioning citizen in a world that has pandemics and droughts and global climate change and all of these decisions that we have to make. So Anyway, that's a lot of ideas, but this is all percolating in my head when I think about how, how can I contribute to you know, promoting science literacy you know, right, for the general population? And I see a way to do that at, at a science center like a Space Center Houston that invites people in, right, people of all backgrounds and right. all ages to come in and have fun, but also to learn something and to increase their confidence as well as increase their knowledge about science and about space exploration. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm kind of forging that path. And I was very lucky to meet, actually at your recommendation. So you're still giving me advice all these years <laughs> in to meet with William Harris, who's of course the CEO over at, at Space Center Houston. And um, he invited me to come and work with them. So oh, I'm embedded there as their chief science officer. And I help basically, you know, inform the, the experiences and the programming that they do, you know, bring that authenticity yeah. from, from the real spaceflight experience, you know, as they're developing educational programs and exhibits and everything else. They told me I'm not allowed to say I'm on loan <laughs> because I'm not an artifact. <laughs> I'm not on loan. I'm on a rotational assignment from NASA, you know, to, to our visitor center, basically. And, and it's been tremendous. I'm learning so much. And, and as I mentioned before, I'm getting to see, you know, so many young people there and people of all ages just spark to, spark to the ideas that are, that are all included in, in space
1: exploration. That, that's very, very cool. Well, keep me posted on how that goes. I sure will. So my final question is back to the space frontier in general. And if you were talking to the equivalent of the high school Megan MacArthur who's gotten this sense of drama and adventure and purpose around spaceflight, what would you say to that person as a your list of the preview of coming attractions? If you aim your schooling at this, you know by the time you're ready to consider jumping into this into the fray, these are the kind of things you could aim to be a part of. Whoa, that's a really good question. Thinking a decade in the future
0: about the kinds of things that a young person now could be doing um, in the future of, of the space program. I talked to kids about, of course, the Artemis program and going to the moon. And there were times in my career where I thought might, it might be me. I might get to go to the moon. But now, now I see the young people that we have in the astronaut office, some of whom I got to hire. I know that I'm going to get to see them go to the moon in the next few years. And so 10 years from now, I envision a time when we are We are conducting long-duration science missions on the surface of the moon where we have astronauts living aboard the Gateway Space Station conducting observations and supporting the the work that's getting done on the surface of the moon and learning how to live on another planetary surface, which will inform us going to Mars because I, I believe that 10 years from now we will have that solid direction and motivation and you know energy for sending people to mars and you know i i do believe that if we if we stay on track and we keep doing these things we're going to do that in my lifetime so i'm i'm very excited about it and it's you know it's a huge spectrum of things right it's not just the astronauts on the surface of the moon that are walking around and picking up rocks right it is developing that entire infrastructure that supports living on another planet right so it's it's the power grid, right? It's yeah. the, it's the habitat and the life support system. It's a communication system. How do you do wayfinding on the moon? What is your GPS you know, yeah. constellation look like around the moon? So making all of those decisions, building that architecture for going to Mars, which I think is absolutely our destiny. Those are the things that are going to be happening 10 years from now that, that I think, you know, that's what I encourage young people to, to get excited about and to think about for their future.
1: Yeah, we, we tend to call anyone who flies in space these days an astronaut. But when you think about that base, that community, that infrastructure on the moon, they'll all get the title astronaut because they're on the moon. Great. You left the Earth. But are they all going to be astronaut like we think of NASA astronaut today? You're going to need construction workers? Are you going to need... Yeah, you know, right. trades, skilled trades. Somebody's going to run the dining facility or the astronauts are going to be <laughs> making their own meals. I mean, what, what, right. what do you imagine that might be like? Yeah, that's I mean, that's a fantastic sort of thought problem to think about. And, you know,
0: right now, astronauts do all of those things. You know, I often right. will describe my job to people on the International Space Station. I say, you know, I'm not the principal investigator. I'm not the scientist. I'm the lab tech and I'm the janitor. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm cleaning the toilet. I'm fixing the air conditioning system as well as is conducting the scientific research. So I would say that, yes, you know, the people on the surface of the moon that are living in this environment and doing all of those things, the skilled trades that you're mentioning, the construction workers. Right. I'm a crane operator. I, I drive a robotic arm. Right. Yeah. Yes, I think all of those people are astronauts, and all of those people are going to be necessary for us living and working on the on the surface of the moon, especially in the in the coming decade. Now, maybe a hundred years from now, it's different, and there's a city under a dome, and the risk associated with your job is is reduced. But in ten years from now, it's still going to be you're wearing a spacesuit to get from point A to point B, right. and you're wearing a spacesuit. In my book, you're a, you're an astronaut. So.
1: <laughs> now I'm completely there. But when my class joined the astronaut corps in 1978, up until that time. One group of astronauts, they did everything. They flew the spaceship and they did the spacewalks and they did whatever experiments. It differentiated one stage when we came along. There was one part of the office that did the flying and a different group in the office, still astronauts, but a subsection who did the spacewalks and operated the science equipment and both helped run the shuttle itself. But the roles had split a little bit. So yes, everyone was still an astronaut, but you were sort of type A or type B and I guess that's what I'm curious about is whether you're in a spacesuit, so you get the label astronaut. But they're now pretty distinctly, you know, 25 type A's and 32 type B's, and because the jobs have differentiated another stage.
0: It's it's interesting because I think that that differentiation that that you remember and that was definitely present when I started in the astronaut office was shuttle based, right? Because yes, the shuttle was much. was a glider, right, and needed those professional test pilots to to operate it from the front seat. Right. Um, But myself as an engineer and as an oceanographer, I got to be the flight engineer, right? And be a part of that crew that was operating. And so for for the new vehicle that I flew on, the Crew Dragon, I was the pilot. And, you know, I don't have a military test flying background. And so as the vehicle and the mission evolves, the roles evolve as well. And in particular for Space Station, we could not have done Space Station without everybody having to learn to do everything, right? Because when you have only, you know, two US crew members on board and you need to do a US spacewalk. Well, I don't care if you're a pilot or an engineer or a robotic arm operator, you have to be able to do that spacewalk. So I think the astronaut office kind of went through another evolution where it was like, okay, everybody's all in for everything. You have to be able to oh, do okay. all of these things. Interesting. And so, you know, even somebody that might say, well, I'm a test pilot, guess what? You're going to be doing molecular biology research on the space station. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we all need to be able to do everything. Now it may differentiate again, right? When we get, when we get to the moon and we have a more uh, long duration presence on the moon and and maybe it makes sense, you know, to differentiate. But the first set of astronauts that we're sending to the moon, whether they're test pilots or biologists or or whatever their background is, guess what? They're gonna be doing lunar geology. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, that's true. Um that's one of the things that's so great about this job, right? Is that you're always getting to learn new stuff and, and tackle new challenges.
1: So if your Mars timeline moves a little more rapidly than you forecast there a few sentences back, and they open a slot for a veteran astronaut, are you in?
0: Oh, I would love to go to Mars. I'm in a little bit of a timeout from my son who his dad flew in space one summer. And then I flew in space the next summer. And when I got home, he said, nobody's going to space again, mommy, staying home." <laughs> although he is already talking about whether or not I'm going to go to the moon. So probably in a couple of, if it was a few years from now, I could probably say yes. But, uh, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm on the bench according to my son for a little while. <laughs>
1: Sounds like you're having a lot of fun on the bench and continuing to do a lot of great things. So uh, we'll look forward to seeing how your current design process for a new trajectory turns out and following your exploits in the future. But in the meanwhile, thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you, Kathy. It's been really great seeing you and talking with you again. And I look forward to following your next adventures as well.
1: Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com.